Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Girl in the Red Cape, written by Jeremy Green. A dazzling blend of alternative history and detective noir, with just a dash of fairy tale. A missing child in a small Transylvania town could spell trouble for Hungary's new revolutionary government. Another case for Ferenc Marlow, pioneer private detective. Soon Marlow is on an undercover mission to the Carpathian Mountains, where he must contend with the local nobility, Jesuit intrigue, and woods that are full of wolves, or something worse. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Girl in the Red Cape. Chapter 1 I awake with a start. My tired body says it's the middle of the night, but the room is flooded with cold, gray light. I don't know what has woken me, but I know it's nothing good. I drag myself from my bed and shuffle slowly to the window. There is no one in the courtyard. I dress hurriedly and go down into the street. It's empty of the usual Budapest bustle, so it must still be very early in the morning. In fact, the sun is not yet up, though the strange gray light is bright enough. The sky is like a flat sheet of hammered metal. Then far away I hear a dull, rhythmic throbbing sound. A drum? Distant cannons? I can't tell, but I know without knowing how that it's bad news. I begin to walk through the empty streets toward the sound. My footsteps ring and echo. I pass no one. Soon I find myself heading down to the wheezy gate. The tenements in the artisan's district are still festooned with sea-green banners proclaiming the triumph of the people. There are green flags and bunting hanging from every window and across the narrow streets. The revolution is barely three months old and the first flush of enthusiasm has not yet faded. Every street has its safety committee, its little detachment of green guards, its stash of pikes and muskets. But now there's no one around, probably sleeping off a heavy night of booze-fueled meetings and debates. Why aren't there any sentries posted? A revolution must be defended all the time. There are plotting aristocrats, foreign enemies, all waiting for us to make just one slip. Don't they remember how the last uprising ended? How the burghers sold the city to the enemy and the nobles marched in and... The gate comes into view, and it's wide open, unguarded. I can see right into the countryside, bathed in the gray light that is not quite morning. Suddenly, I know that the throbbing sound is an army on the march, heading for the city. I look around for the guards, the militiamen on the walls, but there are none. I am gripped by a sense of recurrence, of fate unavoidable. This has happened before will happen again, is always happening. I taste ashes in my mouth, bitter and dry. Is this the army of the nobles again? Or the Habsburg army coming down the Danube that we've been preparing ourselves to face? I curse myself. How can we have been so stupid to allow ourselves to be defeated in exactly the same way as last time? I climb the tower above the gate and look out towards the advancing ranks. It's an army of wretches, clothed in rags of gray and black. The officers' horses are bony nags. The soldiers' armor is dull and battered. 
As they approach, I can see their faces as gray and ashen as their clothes. They are barely alive. With a shock, I realize they are not alive at all. This is an army of the dead or the undead. They carry tattered yellow banners with strange, unreadable letters. I know that if I could only decipher them, I would know how they can be defeated, but I can't make sense of the writing. The letters seem to twist and wriggle on the banners, more alive than the soldiers themselves. Shame washes over me because I know that I should be able to read these characters, that I could once have done it, that I've forgotten how to through my own weakness and dissolution. Now the city will fall, and it will be my fault. There will be massacres, iron thrones, torture like the last time. There will be no quick death for the revolution's leaders, and our heads will be mounted on spikes above the walls. The drumming is louder, nearer, more insistent. At last I can see the drums. They are vast tubs mounted on wagons pulled by more ashen men. Still others are pounding on them with great clubs. There is something particularly nasty about the drum skins. I run back down from the tower. Perhaps I can close the gate or find a bell to rouse the defenders. I put my shoulder against the huge mass of iron-studded timber, but it's no use. It would take at least 20 men to move it, and I feel so weak I can barely stand. I look around for the bell, but I can't see it. I try to shout, and my voice is faint and muffled. The beat of the drum is louder, a strange rhythm with long pauses. Bang, 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 bang. I try again to call out. Now I can't even breathe, much less shout. And then it all begins to dissolve. The army of the undead, the gate, the tower. Only the sound of the drum persists. But it's not a drum, just someone knocking on my door. Again, I struggled out of bed, only this time it was for real. There was a small, bony boy standing at the door, not more than 12 years old, his fist poised to rap again. He was a thin, ragged, dirty-looking kid wearing the green cockade of the young pioneers and the fez that had inexplicably become fashionable among supporters of the revolution. Citizen Marlowe, the old man wants to see you down at the big... His voice trailed away as he looked at me for the first time. Say, are you okay, mister? He said. Sure I am. Not that it's any of your business, I said. I just woke up from a bad dream, that's all. Bad dream, eh? He looked me over carefully. You better tell the old man about that when you see him. And he was gone. I dressed quickly and headed to the street. The sky was brilliant, crystal blue exactly as it should be in a Budapest November. The old guys who played cards in the courtyard of my tenement block were already there as they had been forever. Now they were all sporting green cockades and a few more were wearing fezes. A couple of them waved me a friendly greeting. It was still early, but the streets of the neighborhood were already busy with hawkers and artisans on their way to work. I couldn't be sure, but the artisans looked just a little better dressed and better fed than they had in the summer, and the hawker's trade seemed just a little brisker. Green flags hung from most windows. In the open ground by the river, a sergeant was putting a company of recruits to the citizen army through a session of Swiss pike drill. They looked pretty raw, 
with pikes clattering against each other every time they executed a turn. But perhaps their enthusiasm would make up for their lack of skill and training. Then again, perhaps not. At the palace gate, the regular army guards waved me through. It was three months after the affair in the square that had sparked the revolution, but my face was still good enough as a laissez-passer. The administrative wing of the palace was full, in equal measure of scurrying court flunkies and green guards lounging against walls, swathed in bandoliers and smoking pipes. After a long walk down a lot of corridors, I reached the first minister's office. In the weeks since my old comrade Ratko had replaced the previous occupant, he'd made a few changes. The heavy drapes were gone, and the morning sun streamed in through the tall windows. Dust motes danced energetically in the beams of light. The long empty space that stretched between the door and the minister's bureau was full of furniture now, mainly tables piled busily with maps and documents. The bureau had more than a few empty Slivovitz bottles. Ratko was clearly still having trouble with the Bogomil Code of Abstinence. A head taller than the other men in the room and half as broad again, Ratko looked at once, exhausted and elated. His bald head gleamed in the sunlight, and he hadn't shaved for a couple of days at least. He wore his sash of office as carelessly as he'd worn his bandolier when we'd been fighters together in the time of troubles. He was engaged in conversation with a flunky when I entered the room, but he stopped and strode over to grasp me in one of his trademark bear hugs as soon as he saw me. "'Good to see you, Frankie,' he said, squeezing the breath out of me. "'I could use your help with something.' But what's this about bad dreams? The kid told me. Just a nightmare, I said. I'd had a couple of drinks, and then a couple more. It was nothing new. I've always had them, since... Since... I didn't have to finish the sentence. Radko probably had the same nightmares himself. He fixed me with a stern look. Dreams are important, Frankie. How do you think a good God above can cut through all the filth and stink of the world below and get a message to your soul except through a dream? In any case, the message might not even be for you. It might be for me, for instance. That's how dreams work. So I told him about the dream. When I'd finished, he looked vindicated. What'd I tell you? He said, exactly my point. What is? I asked. It means something to you? Sure it does, he said. You want? I'll spell it out for you. Firstly, the revolution is under threat, in danger even. No shit, Sandor, I said. You don't need a direct line to the supreme being to work that out. The queen is an entriesse for the sea air, whatever story the Habsburg court puts out. I hope King Lajos isn't doing much hunting at the moment. Ratko grimaced. Yo boy has one of those accidents. It's all over for us. Citizen Angevin, as he makes us call him, is as good a shield from the nobility as we're going to get for a while. He goes... And it's Laughing Boy on the throne. He flicked his non-existent hair back in imitation of the crown prince. And his mother standing behind it. I finished his sentence for him. Think you can trust Citizen Angevin, a revolutionary king? Sure I do, said Ratko. In the first place, he's got no choice. He's gone up against the nobles and he's provoked the church by restoring tolerance. Us and the merchants are the only friends he's got. And the merchants don't do fighting. And in the second place, he's loving it. The revolution is like a toy for him. 
He looks 20 years younger in his fez and green sash. We both laughed. The king had caused quite a stir the first time he'd gone out dressed up as a green guard. I almost forgot, said Ratko, smiting himself on the forehead. What do you think of the new flag? The boys in Agitprop came up with it. He unrolled a large piece of fabric and spread it out on one of the tables. There were three horizontal stripes, red at the top, white in the middle, and green at the bottom. You get it? asked Ratko eagerly. Red and white like the Arpod flag, and then green for the revolution. The union of opposites, representing the new Hungary. It looks like an Italian dessert, I said. Ratko looked disappointed, and I felt bad. But in a good way, I added, I like Italian desserts. There are worse banners to die under than the sign of the cannoli. Now Ratko laughed, and then he was serious again. In a year, six months, if we're lucky, we'll be ready to fight, to withstand a siege or anything else they can throw at us. I've got other things going on, too. We've got feelers out to the level of government in England. They're natural allies, and if they raid the Habsburg bases in Flanders, it will keep the bastards' minds off us. In five years, we won't even need to fight. The nobles will be extinct, gobbled up by the land tax and land reform. Till then, we have to buy time, play nicey-nicey with the king and the church, whatever it takes to keep them all at bay. So what's the job? I said. A missing child, a girl, said Ratko. Another one? I'm turning into a specialist. He could see from my face that I was disappointed. This time it's different, said Ratko. For a start, she really is a child, and for another thing, she's probably dead. Maybe we could start at the beginning, I ventured. Where did the girl go missing? Not here, said Ratko. In Erde, across the mountains, Transylvania, if you prefer. A little town called Bozojufalu. She was a Sekler kid. It's partly a Sekler village. You know, the sort of place, middle of the woods, not on the way to anywhere. Anyways, the kid lives in the village with her parents. Lived, I should say. But her grandmother lives in a cottage deep in the forest. The parents used to send the girl over with a basket of groceries every so often. One day, the girl goes off with a basket and no one sees her again. Not much of a case, I said. A wolf got her, or a bear. Ate her up, left the bones in the snow. Come the spring, they'll find them and bury what's left of her. Sad, but I can't see any mystery or much of a case to solve. Ratko nodded soberly. That's what I thought, too. On the other hand, what is a mystery is why you give a damn about anything that happens in Erde. Last time I looked, it was Ottoman. Nothing to do with us. Let the Turks figure out what happened to the kid. Ratko slapped both his hands on his thighs. You know what? Let's take a walk. It's getting stuffy in here. He gave a sideways glance at the flunky hovering by his desk and stood up. As we paced the corridors of the palace, he started again. The Ottomans want to hand Erde back to us. We're best pals now, what with the trade treaty and the non-aggression pact, and it's sort of a gesture of goodwill. That and the fact they can't stand the place, I said. It's poor, it's backward, and it's creepy. When we were fighting to the death with the nobles here, the peasants there didn't lift a finger. Yeah, well, they were probably scared of impalement, or worse, Ratko replied. The nobles over the mountains, they make our bastards look like pussycats. 
The peasants believe all sorts of weird things about them, probably with good reason. He screwed up his face in a gesture of disgust. But it's an offer we can't refuse. If it got out that the revolutionary government turned down the chance to recover our stolen Southlands, we'd have some explaining to do. So the Turks want to give us Aridae on a plate. Whoop-de-doo. But what's this got to do with the missing kid? The local Orthodox priest in the village is putting it around she's been killed as part of some kind of ritual thing. Devil worshippers who need the blood for I don't know what. People there, they believe all kinds of trash about black magic and so on. Now, the townsfolk are all fired up and the Turks don't know what to do. They don't want to crack down, not when they're packing their bags to quit. But the priest keeps stirring up and they have to do something. So you want me to... I began. Hold your horses, Frankie, Ratko interrupted. We had reached a small inner courtyard and Ratko indicated that we should sit down on a bench by a little fountain. You ain't heard the half of it. The Jesuit order in Vienna has cottoned on to the affair and they've decided to send an investigative mission to find out whether the rumors of devil worship and ritual killing have any substance. A top inquisitor, one of their intellectual big guns. A smart move, I said. If he finds anything, it goes to show what a dark and evil place Eride is. No doubt because of the loose morals of the heretics, the poisonous fruit of religious toleration. If he finds nothing... It goes to show that the Jesuits are rational people, not like those superstitious heretics and schismatics in Erde. Heads they win, tails you lose. It's worse than that, he said. I think the church wants to scuttle the treaty and the handover. If they can wind the peasants up enough about Satanists, they might be able to get a little uprising going. Doomed to failure, of course, but that ain't the point. I raised an eyebrow. If there's an uprising, then the Turks have to crack down. They can't let themselves look weak, not if they want to hang on to the rest of their empire in the Balkans. So, no handover and no treaty. Pretty bad, I agreed. So, it would be really helpful if we could find out what's become of the kid before the devil worship stuff gets to fever pitch. You got it, said Ratko. And before the Jesuits have the chance to crawl all over Erde, I think they have a scheme to bring the Romanian Orthodox, most of the peasants are Orthodox, into the bosom of Mother Church. The investigation will be a cover for the meetings with sympathetic patriarchs. They'll cut some sort of deal, let them keep the old liturgy as long as they accept the Pope as boss. And then we've got loyal Catholics to the North and the South. Next thing, they'll be in the Empire with a Habsburg princeling as sovereign. So, you think the Jesuits know about the deal with the Ottomans? Sure they do. Everyone knows everything. You know what it's like, said Ratko, waving his hand impatiently. They've got their guys inside the palace, or someone who's seen a document that tells his priest at confession, and he tells, well, you get the picture. Look, Ratko, this is out of my league. You want some sort of diplomat here, not a cheap gumshoe from the 8th district. Not so, Frankie, said Ratko, brightening a little at last. The Jesuits don't hold all the cards, not yet. I'm still the first minister, ain't I? So I've suggested that the investigative mission should be an ecumenical one with representatives of all the religions in the kingdom. While they're pretending to be in favor of tolerance, they can't go against that, so they've agreed. Yeah, well, I'm not exactly a minister of religion, am I? I said. Ratko ignored me. That dream of yours, he went on. The army of the undead... That was to connect it with Erde, 
because of the stories about the Transylvania nobles being Nesaferatu, vampires, and those banners that you couldn't read in the dream, the letters look like this. He handed me a document with some Cyrillic lettering. I shook my head. I thought not. How about this? He showed me another scrap of paper which looked to be torn from a Hebrew prayer book. I don't know, I said. They were just letters I couldn't read. They weren't any particular kind of letters. That part of the dream was telling you that you should have been paying attention in Hebrew school. You did go to Hebrew school, right? I shrugged. Even before the expulsion, my family didn't care too much about that sort of thing. Afterwards, there weren't any Hebrew schools, and even owning the books would have been fatal. Anyway, what's all this about Hebrew? Ratko looked around as if to check that the courtyard was still empty, then clapped me on the back. I want you to be part of the mission, Frankie, to represent the Jews. Now that you've returned to the faith and all, your dream proves that I was right. He grinned at me as if he'd made a really clever joke. Hang on, Ratko, I protested. I'm not representing any Jews. They wouldn't have me represent them, and I wouldn't want to do it. Fact is, I'm more a Spinoza sort of Jew. I couldn't fool anyone that I was the real thing. The Jesuit would probably know more Hebrew than I did. Come on, Citizen Mahler, said Rotko. Remember what I said when I pulled your ass out of the fire back in the old town square? How I'd managed to bring out such a big crowd to face down the soldiers? You said you'd called in a few favors, I answered. Right, and now I'm calling one in from you, said Rotko. I need you. The revolution needs you. I gotta make sure that the investigative mission finds what it needs to, not what the Jesuits want it to. I can't trust some floppy-handed rabbi who's only just moved back here and could be gone just as quickly. You owe me that much. It ain't gonna work, Ratko, I protested. I haven't returned to the faith. I don't have any faith. Never had. I just started using my dad's name again, is all. I got bored with telling the whole, my ancestor was English story, but I can't see how I can make out like I'm a proper Jew, let alone a rabbi. Don't you worry about that part. He tapped the side of his nose. I've got a plan. Just say you'll go to Erde, find the girl, find her wolf-gnawed body, really, and I'll see that you've got the credentials. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Girl in the Red Cape. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.